Hi, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Sustainable Connections podcast. I'm Mark Lee. I'm the Global Director of the ERM Sustainability Institute. You've heard my voice on these sessions before if you're a regular listener. If you're new, then welcome, and we're absolutely delighted to have you joining us today. If you are new to the show, the concept behind Sustainable Connections is that we are speaking with leaders of organizations in the sustainability field who are helping find and develop those collaborations and partnerships that really let us tackle the systemic challenges of the low carbon energy transition, equity, everything that drives the, the, the sustainability agenda writ large. Today, I'm joined by a couple of really interesting people to have a conversation on hydrogen and the role that that's going to play in all of our future. So let me welcome Morella Atanasiu of the Clean Hydrogen Partnership and also David Hart, who is a fellow partner with me at ERM, but also our global hydrogen lead. So first, Morella, hello, welcome, and please tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role at the Clean Hydrogen Partnership and give us the headline on the organization as well. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Really a pleasure to be here with you and with David to, to talk today about myself. Yeah, I'm a Romanian by birth, studied in Romania, chemical engineer, economy, and then worked as a researcher in Romania on energy, in general on decarbonizing the fossil fuel burning paths, if I can say that, mm -hmm. with some CCS, looking at CCS, with a bit of hydrogen. And 20 years ago, in fact, 1st of March, it, it's going to be 20 years ago, I came to wow. Brussels, started to work for the, for the European Commission as a research program officer, and have been given the hydrogen portfolio 20 years ago. It looked a bit scary to me at the beginning, mm -hmm. I have to say. I haven't done much, not only on projects at European level, but also on, on hydrogen in particular, although being a chemical engineer should have been easier, but still. And I have to say the first six months, I put a lot of effort, but then I, I really started to enjoy a lot doing this work at the commission level, at EU level, on research on uh, and innovation on, on, on hydrogen. So for 20 years, I've done that. And in 2008, in fact, I moved with the file because in 2008, the European Commission decided to start uh, working in partnership with industry in doing research and innovation in Europe to speed up, if I can say, the development of the technologies, but also their introduction uh, into the market. So the file left, European Commission moved into the joint undertaking and I left with a file. I was so happy to, to, to follow that because, like I said, I was enjoying uh, a lot. Now I'm part of this Clean Hydrogen Partnership still for 15 years already. Mm -hmm. I'm currently the head of operations. So I'm heading the entire operations here. Uh, about 15 people in my team, all team of project officers, managing more than 100, 150 projects now currently running but also complemented by a team of knowledge manager and communications. For a year almost, I'm also doing the interim uh, executive director job. I have to say it offered me another perspective into management of this organization, which I enjoy. I enjoy also, but I think I prefer to stay head of operations. I think I like to do practical things. I like to see achievements. This is what I enjoy most. Well, no, great intro and glad to hear the, the arc of the journey, kind of 20 years in hydrogen, now 15 years clean hydrogen partnership. 
And interesting to actually hear you reflect on the difference between that operational leadership and the executive director role. I'm going to come back to you in a moment for a bit more on the Clean Hydrogen Partnership itself. But David, first want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Thank you, Mark. Uh, lovely to be on this with Mirella. Uh, really looking forward to the rest of the discussion. My journey actually started in Japan. Uh, I graduated from university. I went to work in Japan on research and development engineering. I went to a conference where I saw a fuel cell back in 1992. I had no idea what it was, how it worked, uh, but I was intrigued. I ended up going back to university, doing a master's and then a PhD in hydrogen energy systems, running a research group in hydrogen in the 1990s and graduated or perhaps slipped over to the dark side into consulting uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and so I've been doing hydrogen things for, for about 30 years now, which is quite scary, but it's really exciting. The, the trajectory between the early questions, which were what is hydrogen and who cares, to how do we implement it? How can we use it to scale up? How can we make money out of it? How can we use it to save the planet? Uh, it's it's a it's a really great place to be. Well, if we can answer even a few of those questions today, from how we use it to make money to how we use it to save the planet, we will feel like we've accomplished an incredible amount. Uh, Morella, I think it'll help us get to those things if our listeners just understand a bit better what is the Clean Hydrogen Partnership. Uh, you know, not all of our listeners will be based in Europe, and not even all of those based in Europe, I think, will understand the organization. So, can we get? a summary of that in a minute or two to help set the stage for the rest of the conversation? It has been created in 2008 by the European Commission with our industries in, in, in Europe who decided to, to join forces. So it's a public-private partnership. We call it now Clean Hydrogen Partnership. Before it was called Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Joint Undertaking. It was a very long uh, legalistic name. We try to make it easier also for people to understand that it's a partnership in which, like I said, both sides, public and private, joint forces, public with funding, private with direction, with strategy, and uh, whatever we decide to do on research and innovation at EU level, complementary to countries, because this is also what I have to, to explain every single time, that as compared to other continents in Europe, we have this European Union and all the efforts at EU level complement those of the countries. So whatever we do here, we do in a partnership, and we know for sure that the technological solution that we develop in the partnership exploited further by the industry. We don't do research for the sake of research. That the commission does with other programs. Here, we do research that industry, again, is interested to further exploit. For that... Just to, 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 to finish, for that, uh, right now we have 1 billion euro. It may not seem a lot, but this, again, this is a transnational, if you want, effort. And we try to, to get people around, researchers, industries around the whole Europe to work together with this 1 billion uh, euro. That's great. Incredibly helpful. And I wonder if you can take even one step further, Mirella, and give us an example of a project that... CHP is currently um, activating and tell us why it's influential. Tell us why it's emblematic of what uh, CHP is trying to accomplish. Wow, that's difficult to choose a project out of the 367 we have uh, or we have supported. Let me take a valley. I know I may become a bit uh, boring, 
with uh, again and again give example of of this hydrogen valleys concept that we 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 formulated in uh, in Europe but i i am proud of this concept there is innovation in there although not much on the technology side but it's innovation on the on the business model side on the project development side i mean why am i proud with this hydrogen valleys project is that uh, they test locally the technology and they also solve the chicken and egg, the so-called chicken and egg problem that we have on hydro- in, in, in the hydrogen business, where if we develop a project on hydrogen production, we have to make sure that the hydrogen is used. If we develop a hydrogen use project, we have to make sure that somebody is producing the hydrogen. So Fair we enough. always had this <laughs> chicken and egg problem, we call it. And with Hydrogen Valley concepts, we put the two together and we have production and use into the same project locally, which is another benefit of, of, of such projects. And this is why I'm very proud that we came with this concept back in 2018, concept that has been uh, adopted by other parts of the world. The Americans call them hubs, but we call them valleys. Don't ask me why we came with this concept in in 2018, like I said, maybe linked to exploring jobs that exist in the region locally, maybe linked to many aspects. And that's why we came with this valley concept. But I'm happy we, we put it in place and now it's recognized all over the world that it's probably the type of project that will push the hydrogen technologies. And we have about 15 to 17 projects of valleys all across Europe in about nine to 10 countries. So I'm happy with to give that example. And so each hydrogen valley is a, in effect, a pilot and a test case where there is yeah. production and use, um, multi-stakeholder, sounds like perhaps government at more than one level and private yeah. sector involvement to make all the parts happen. Yeah. Great. And I think shows a little bit of the, the complexity of, of, of making this unfold too. David, I want to get the ERM perspective on hydrogen, if you will. We work across diversified energy. We're pushing on a bunch of aspects of the low carbon transition. Hydrogen is an element of that. So one, what is ERM doing as regards hydrogen? What does your day job look like? And how does that fit within wider efforts to accelerate action to address climate change? Hydrogen is literally an element of that and, and a very important one. And I and I say that because actually that's that's really important scene setting. You know, we come at this from a system perspective. Mm. We're trying to solve a whole range of different problems, all of which are connected. So ERM in hydrogen, quite specifically, has people who work at the innovation end, looking at due diligence on technology projects, looking at investments, looking at techno-economic modeling, looking at how you roll out clusters in industry to decarbonize. But then we also look much more widely. So we look at regional policy and understand how that supports the the, the development of hydrogen and how it fits with things like the just transition, because hydrogen is not an answer in itself. It is there to help us to decarbonize, to clean up the air, to allow local use of resources, to create jobs, to achieve all sorts of other things that are part of the bigger ERM sustainability objectives and, and values and, and what, we're, what we're all striving towards. So we also, we do environmental impact assessment, we do health and safety work, we do permitting, we do all sorts of really interesting things in different areas 
all with this, the hope that we will have an impact to pick up on exactly what Mirella said, to build these ecosystems that are self-functioning and self-supporting and will grow into something that actually is very meaningful in, in terms of uh, helping us save the planet, as I was saying. Great start. Um, I'm still deciding whether or not I'm going to forgive you the element pun. For now, I'm going to set it aside. I, I am going to toss. I am going to toss the same question back at you as I did at Morella. Can you give me an example of a project that brings that to life? I think the 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 specificity really helps folks understand the story. So we actually work really closely with the Clean Hydrogen Partnership, and we have done since it started, and it, in fact, before it started. But we have worked, for example, on some of the inception of, let's say, the, the, the hydrogen bus program. We were instrumental in starting some of the clean hydrogen bus programs in cities in Europe, which bring together this really complicated stakeholder map of somebody needing to produce the hydrogen, somebody needing to build a refueling station, somebody needing to be willing to convert buses, the suppliers for those buses, the maintenance of those buses, the local politicians and, and the people who actually ride the buses, understanding what they want and what they need and, and what they're worried about. So we have been part of that journey and we still run some of those major projects which are not only about buses anymore but also about other vehicles and stationary fuel cells and all sorts of interesting larger and larger scale hydrogen projects. Great. And again, that just the multi-actor element of this, that hydrogen bus, great concept, but do we have a manufacturer willing to build one in the first place, let alone the hydrogen supply and the fueling infrastructure to make that possible? Um, I'm going to come back to both of you and and, and just try, I'm trying to get, I guess, hydrogen in the context of Europe's low carbon transition. The targets for hydrogen and the promise of hydrogen seems ambitious. Targets are high. Is it scaling fast enough to deliver its part in the continent's low carbon move? Um, what might be holding it back? And I'm reflecting, I have to say, continuously on that. Uh, what can we do to push for the scaling up? I don't think it's scaling up uh, fast enough. And now I'm trying to, to explain why I, I, I believe that. I think with and in particular, with, with the efforts of, of the partnership, we again brought the technology into the market. We started from, again, 20 years ago, it was in the lab. It was in the lab, a lot was in the lab, all the types of technologies. We were mostly looking at fuel cells, less on electrolyzers. Electrolysis is known. I learned in my university studies about that. It's not a, something we discover now. The type of the electrolysis technology that we are trying now to develop, it's different. And we use some learnings from the fuel cell side, like the polymeric one, PEM, and we now develop uh, PEM electrolyzers. So we were at the lab. We brought it into the market. Some, to refer to, to David's uh, example before, uh, for some technologies, we brought different generation of products into the market. We decreased the price of bus, for example, mm -hmm. from 1.5 million, that mm -hmm. was in 2010, to 600,000, 500,000, 600,000 now. But it's still expensive to get back to your question on scaling up. And only scaling up manufacturing, mass manufacturing will decrease the cost more, mm, substantially, to become uh, more competitive. 
In the stationary side, I don't know for the buses, but in the stationary side, I remember when we were doing one of our projects, the modeling was telling us that with mass manufacturing, we decrease the cost by 40%. So there is improvement on the technology. You can further decrease the cost, but just with mass manufacturing, with scaling up, you decrease the cost substantially, 40%. It's a lot to be able to, to, to decrease it. Now, why is not happening? I think we need different signals for, for the industry to invest. Most of our industries uh, here in Europe are small and medium, SMEs, the so-called SMEs. It will be very difficult for them to take a decision to build a manufacturing line and to scale up. Mm-hmm. They need a lot of investment. And to move into that direction, they need a clear signal. Europe is trying to, to, to do an effort with this IPSE, important projects of common European interest, where every country looks at their industries and they decide to consider them important and with a lot of interest, common interest between countries, and then to uh, support them in particular. That, that's the concept of this IPSE, a country wanting to invest in two, three companies and to get an exception that it does not distort the competition because it is considered strategically important. So this is a bit where, with these signals, I hope now that we will see more and more investments and we will see the necessary scaling up, but it's not yet happening. Yeah, and there's just an interesting arc in the bus example that you gave at the start that the drop in price from 1.5 million to 600,000 is incredible. And that's probably still four times or something the cost of a diesel bus that would be the alternative today, right? So David, if we pick that up and, and the tremendous progress is being made, where are some applications of hydrogen technology currently accelerating fastest? And where might we kind of watch for the things that are going to really set the pace through the rest of this decade? The underlying problem is that we're trying to change a whole energy system much faster than we've ever done this before. And we're doing it for a reason which is different than we've ever done it before. So historically, we do this by saying, oh, we found a new source of energy, be that oil or gas. Uh, Now let's go exploit it. Somebody can make money. And what we're saying now is let's change our energy system because we have a problem related to emissions in particular. So all of those stakeholder groups that you mentioned earlier all have to be aligned in order for this uptake to happen rapidly. And as Mirella was saying, you need the scale in manufacturing and we need to scale. The electrolyzer industry was a few hundred megawatts uh, five years ago. The targets are hundreds of gigawatts. So that's a a three order of magnitude scaling of an entire industry, supply chain, resource base, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a colossal question. The things that are really leading this are the areas where we already use hydrogen. So in refining, in ammonia production, in steel manufacture, in some others, where we don't have to educate quite as much, where we have industrial processes, we have safety cases already made, we understand, and it's a large volume requirement. And so adding some renewably produced hydrogen or some alternatively produced hydrogen into the mix is a comparatively low additional cost and additional risk. And that's really helping us to to drive. So a lot of the big projects we see are in renewable ammonia, green ammonia coming from green hydrogen. It's still not fast enough. 
but those will help to build the industrial base, uh, build the supply chain, educate people, make sure we understand the evolving safety case, which is incredibly important, and also help people to make money, which they can then reinvest in bringing the technology costs down and in convincing more investors to participate and convincing government stakeholders that actually this is a good thing to support and the the electorate will be positive about it, as opposed to saying, why are you throwing our money at, at this slightly unusual aspect of, of the future? So those are the things that I'm following. Are The valleys are a great example of linking supply and demand. So you kind of need all of the economics to be wrapped into something. And you say, okay, I, I understand how this case works. And these big industrial cases, we are seeing a lot of traction in industrial decarbonization. And that, I, I am very hopeful, will, will help to drive that acceleration. Yeah, I was intrigued about the comment about the pace at which we're trying to force hydrogen to scale as an energy source. And I, I have this stat lurking in the back of my head that over the last couple of hundred years, successful new sources of energy that have joined the energy system have taken up to 30 years to become 1% of supply. And we obviously can't wait that long in the low carbon transition. We have to move these things that much faster. And your hints about finding where it can be done at volume, linking it to critical processes or needs that already exist, I think must be part of that. You both mentioned several times the stakeholders involved. There's clearly a big role for government. Morel, I want to come back to you and ask, is hydrogen uniquely dependent on public-private partnership compared to some of the other things that are happening in the energy system? How does that relationship work in this case? We have been the main funding uh, at EU level on hydrogen maybe until 2020. And I think with our results, again, we show that that the, the technology works. It works in the field. It needs the improvements still, uh, and it's normal like for any new technologies. But then as of 2020, the European Commission launched the hydrogen strategy, launched the hydrogen alliance, launched the sector integration strategy. So it started to come with new policies. And then with the new legislation put in place more tools for funding. So we are not anymore the only source of funding. There is the Innovation Fund, which is based on the ETS, Emission Trading Scheme, that the, 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 the European Commission has in place. Now, as of November last year, the, the bank, which is not a physical bank, it's, it's an auction for the premium difference in hydrogen production price. It's a pilot for now, but the Commission intends to, to put more in place. And they received more than 132 applications for, for this auction. Uh, so there are many, many, uh, many uh, sources of funding, in particular in, uh, in in Europe. And again, I'm I'm only mentioning funding opportunities at EU level. Mm -hmm. I mentioned at the beginning there are many funding opportunities at national level or regional level. There are funds, regional funds. There are social funds, for example, to train people that we are now trying to see how we can use for training the workforce for, for, for hydrogen. There are many, many sources of funding. However, where uh, we still differentiate ourselves, it's on research and innovation. And I'm coming back to the points of David before. I think to get to, to gigawatts, we need still to improve the, the technology. The best we know now from our projects is how to install 10 megawatts 
We cannot go to gigawatts with a multiple of 10 megawatts. That would be my uh, opinion. And especially in the 10 megawatts, we have modules of less than one. Hmm? We need to work uh, to improve the technology. We need to reduce its footprint. We need to make it more performant. And I think this is where we in the in the partnership with industry, with research organizations, we still have to work on the technology to improve it. There is no way we will get to these hundreds of gigawatts with the existing technology of today. That we will put another 20, another 100, another 150. The gigawatts will be built with the next generation of electrolyzers. And that's where our partnership still has to, to, to work on. Okay. And David, I'd love you to build on this. I'm curious for your perspective on the public-private role, I'd also like it to invite you at least to take us into regional or industry use cases. Um, feel free to roam outside of Europe, but I think just again, you know, what's the variation in, in how hydrogen is developing across industry and in different parts of the world? Some really important points to highlight, which are about systemic change again. So hydrogen is part of the solution one of the things that frustrates me, I, I suspect frustrates Mirella, frustrates many people, is 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 a very ideological approach to certain energy vectors and say, you know, batteries will always win, hydrogen will always win, something else will always win. That's not true. It can't be true. We have a, a very heterogeneous energy system at the moment. And so we need to consider how things play together in order to make the most impact in the shortest time. And there will be times when hydrogen is the right answer and times when other things are much better. If you can use renewable electricity directly, huge amounts of funding going into wind and solar and, and other things do that. And that leads into the geographical question. So there are areas of the world where there are a very large pools of renewable capacity. And we think perhaps of uh, Latin America, so Chile, for example, or Brazil. We think of Australia, we think of Southern Africa, areas which historically have not always had access to the fossil resources that a lot of the economy is built on. There is not always the demand that would be needed in order to take up all of the renewable energy potential. And so there is an, an enormous amount of interest in turning that into hydrogen and shipping it somewhere else, in which case you get a balance of payments benefit, you help to decarbonize the economy, you maybe unlock some geopolitical tensions because you are not only dependent on the places where there are fossil resources. It has all sorts of interesting interplay on that. And at the other side, there are countries which are thinking about this as an economic development engine more for the workforce. So India is, is really ramping up renewables, really ramping up uh, on hydrogen very recently. And of course, the Indian uh, economy has, has an enormous amount of capability in engineers and technology developers and large corporates who can actually turn this into something which is potentially very cost effective. And China sees it the same way. So how can we develop jobs and, 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 and skill people and do education and all of those things? So it's a really interesting and diverse play. I think this will also be very powerful in terms of solving the problem because uh, Mirella comes at this quite rightly from the European perspective, 
Europe has been a leader in this for a long time. Japan has been a leader in this for a long time. But we need all of the horsepower in the other economies also to drive this, to pick up on ideas, to build factories, to scale up, to, to, to train people in order to be able to have any chance of, of rolling this out at the scale that we need it. Reflecting on where you led in on vectors and interested in you saying like, I think don't view hydrogen in isolation and don't judge its success or failure on its own. It's one of multiple vectors that are moving forward, helping to drive the low carbon energy transition, but they all only succeed if they're kind of intertwined and they're somewhat mutually dependent that this is a workforce play in India and we're converting a part of the economy. So it is really helpful actually to, to view it in that integrated way. So there's there's one other thing. I, I read an interesting comment in an article not, not that long ago, which basically said, in order to achieve the fastest possible energy transition, we need to work together. And in effect, by by turning into little groups of uh, ideological supporters of an individual technology or energy vector or, 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 or solution, all we are doing is slowing down the transition and helping the people who don't want it to happen. And I found that very powerful because I think this is very much, it, it's not one size fits all. And we we really have to be talking to each other and listening to each other about what makes sense in different places. And, and, and that the dogmatic approach is not a positive one. Yeah, rarely, rarely is, I think. But that, that's almost a whole other philosophical and theoretical discussion, isn't it? Marella, I'm going to come back to you and David. I'm going to throw the same question at you in a moment. So, so be ready. We've talked about some of the ways this space has developed, some of the obstacles to its scaling faster at present, but also some of the ways in which we're beginning to see breakthrough. And as we kind of come and draw this to a close, I'd love each of you to talk about the indicators of progress that you watch or rely on to tell us where this is working. What can what can folks interested in hydrogen's potential learn from, learn to observe, and, and where should we be looking for the most interesting advancements in the next few years? Morella? I I really hope to see um the the scaling up, the manufacturing happening. Again, coming back to my comment before, we need still to do some efforts on uh, on on improving the manufacturing processes. That's one thing, and continuously working on solutions, maybe linked also to what David said, where hydrogen can make a difference. Hmm. We have never said hydrogen is the solution. It's the solution. It's a solution. It's one of the many solutions, and indeed, again, we have to focus our efforts where it makes sense. And maybe uh, coming back to our program, and I hope uh, I'm not going to upset anybody by saying this, I'm very careful, but we've uh, supported, and I mentioned, cars and buses. Buses being one of the success stories, cars not really. Not because we don't have a solution for hydrogen cars, but because there we have maybe better solutions in the battery cars. Hmm. We are not saying hydrogen cars will not be used, but probably will be in a less percentage than in other transport modes, like probably in, in aviation, where indeed it's either hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuels, still based on hydrogen. 
or uh, like in uh, trucks, where again, we know that hydrogen will, uh, will make a difference. So this is where probably we should focus our efforts. That's how I will see if you want the future. And again, trying to improve some of the other technologies, even on production or on transportation. David referred to ammonia. Again, I hope not to upset anybody. I don't really believe in that career. I know it's easy. We know how to transport ammonia from point A to point B. And then what do we do with all the ammonia arriving in all the ports in Europe? That's for me still a question. We are still working at a very low TRL on cracking ammonia. How many fertilizer we can still produce with this amount of ammonia? Because again, we don't know, and I don't think it's good to burn it. So you see, there are questions that I think we still have to answer to. And this is, I think, where we should spend, uh, if you ask me, uh, or I should spend my time in the next uh, five to 10 years. You've kind of set out your own challenge, but I like the guidance on the need for us to to be selective and smart in in application of hydrogen and the other technologies that can complement it to make sure that they do complement and don't compete. David, looking forward, where will we see acceleration? What will tell you we're we're being successful? In, In a sense, fairly obvious, but I think nevertheless worth reminding people of places to look. It's about where we see investment going into manufacturing. So Mm. if somebody is prepared to commit to building a 100,000 unit production line, they have a reasonably clear view of a use case and and an offtake. Not always, but but that's, that's a good indicator. And I agree, we need to focus on the things that work. And so what, we're in what I call a chaotic transition phase. We, we've we've suddenly decided we need to ramp up. We've thrown all sorts of efforts at it, lots of policy, lots of money, lots of different companies have popped in. What we're going to see now is a consolidation. We're going to see the market starting to decide what works and what doesn't. So we will see use cases that need less and less support. And I think that's the other indicator is where you can start to build an ecosystem which relies on very little government support, whether that's stick or carrot, that's a real sign that we're we're getting into scale-up territory. Yeah, and that makes great sense that use cases that need less support will be the ones where we will see uh, entrepreneurs and investors willing to build that line that can produce 100,000 units of whatever it is that they are ready to make that decision to invest in. David Morella, I really just want to say thanks to both of you. It's been a pleasure to have the conversation today. I hope folks out there in the world have enjoyed listening to the three of us as much as I've enjoyed listening to the two of you. Uh, If you're a listener of the Sustainable Connections podcast and curious about other episodes, you can find those on erm.com. You can also find them on your favorite podcast platform, be that Apple or Spotify or YouTube. We would love it if you would subscribe even better if you might offer us a review or a comment. But again, to close, focused on today's guests, uh, David Morella, thank you so much. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and that we'll get a chance to continue this conversation another time. Bye for now.